Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. I'm an MBA candidate at the Wharton School and an MA candidate at the Lauder Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. Our guest today is Nikki Gulimis. She's the COO and co-founder of Nova Credit, a mission-driven company that aims to solve the problem of credit access for immigrants. Nova is a B2B company that serves consumers by connecting foreign credit bureaus with major lenders in the US to help immigrants use their international credit history to get access to credit products in the US. Prior to Nova, Nikki was a consultant at Bain and Company, where she worked with a number of European retail banks. Nikki is originally from Greece and grew up in the UK. She holds a BA from the University of Cambridge and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where she was awarded the Miller Social Change Leadership Award. And now, without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Nikki Gulimis. Hi, Nikki, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So uh, we're here at uh, Nova Credit's offices, right in the middle of Manhattan, Flatiron. Uh, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, sure. So hi, everyone. Um, I'm Nikki Gulimas. I'm the co-founder and COO of Nova Credit. Um, in terms of a little bit about me, I'm from Greece originally. I grew up in the UK. I went to a French school. So similar to you, Miguel, I'm a little bit of a, of a confused person, um, but have uh, have been on the startup journey for, for just over four years now and have absolutely loved it. Fantastic. Did you move to the United States for your MBA? Yeah, so hello, MBA listeners. Um, yeah, I came to the States for my MBA, um, and I had been living most recently in the UK, uh, came out here, and actually we started Nova partly through a, through a personal problem for, for my co-founders and I. You know, in our, in our MBA program, there's a lot of international students. We were at some of those international students, and financing our education, getting access to credit cards, uh, loans, get, being able to rent an apartment, being able to get a cell phone, all of those things were extremely problematic. We would apply for loans and get rejected. We would try and get a cell phone plan and get shifted over to a, a prepaid plan. We'd try and rent apartments. And uh, my co-founder actually got asked for like a six-month deposit in San Francisco. And, and in New York, I believe it's 12 months. All because despite having a financial identity in our home countries, we have no financial identity here in the US. And so uh, armed with that insight, we eventually set out to build Nova Credit um, to create a, a global credit report effectively for people to be able to port their identity from one country to another. Yeah, I can definitely empathize <laughs> with the feeling. Uh, not just myself, but I was talking to a classmate from Mexico who told me he spent 10 years building a flawless credit history mm -hmm. and then got here for his MBA and couldn't get a $500 credit line. Yeah, and you have to think also if it's, if it's challenging for uh, your uh, a, a highly educated business school classmate, it becomes even more challenging for, for other folks. Good point. And when was the, the moment when you decided, okay, let's take this beyond just a, a project and idea, and let's actually start looking at seriously as a, as a full company? Yeah, I think, um, so for me personally, um, I had had no, you know, I feel like at business school you have all sorts of people who are extremely interested in startups, they're hustling around, looking for ideas. I remember in my first week there were a bunch of people looking at photos of the bicycle, talking about how they were going to innovate on the bicycle. 
I wanted to shout at them, you know, the bicycle is great. <laughs> Can't improve on it. I love the bicycle. But you probably can. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of biking innovation, I guess, with, with Peloton and so on and so forth. But before we digress into bicycles, um, I think um, for me, I, I wasn't one of those people. I wasn't that interested uh, in startups. Uh, but my co-founder, Misha, was like, hey, Nikki, why don't we work on this class project? It's a problem that we faced and uh, we can we can sort of work through it. And at first I was, you know, completely uninterested. I was like, I need to get a job right now. Um, um, but then he persuaded me and I completely fell in love with just the process of firstly working together as a team, uh, but also the problem space that we were working on and the, the impact that we could have. Uh, but I think it took me a long while to come around from this being a class project to actually deciding to do it full time and deciding to, to take that leap of faith um, post-graduation. Curious to know, was this a project on your first semester, or was it your first time working with Misha? No, we had worked together on a, on a number of projects before, including we, we led a class trip um, to uh, uh, to Mongolia together. Oh, wow. So actually we submitted, and this was in our second year, we, we submitted a Y Combinator application uh, from like the Mongolian steppe, uh, where we had very challenging access to Wi-Fi. We both sort of woken up at 5 a.m. and, and looked completely, um, completely dazed. Um, but no, we, we had worked on a few projects together. We built a lot of familiarity and, and just liked working together with friends as well. Um, and things kind of snowballed from there. So yeah, we, we actually started working on the, the Nova Credit project in our, in our second and final year. Okay. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, what was the first step to start building the company? How did you approach building the technology, for example? Yeah. So our company is very much about building a network. Effectively, we're connecting international credit bureaus with domestic financial institutions um, and then building technology to connect the two so they can actually interact with the consumers. In many places, it's sort of a three-sided marketplace between consumer data around the world and then user of the data in the US. Um, and so building that was difficult because um, you sort of have to straight away pull together a three-handed transaction. Um, so which side of that triangle do you start building? And really where we started initially was just with a lot of validation. Um, we would walk into random banks in the Bay Area and ask them, you know, show them sample data. And be like, would you would you approve someone on this? Would you be able to turn that rejection into an acceptance? And uh, cold calling various credit unions and different financial institutions. We did something similar with credit bureaus in different markets, just trying to understand could we structure something. Um, and then on the technology side, we sort of iterated. But I think the very hard thing at the beginning is um, with any company that is that is a marketplace, it's you know you sort of you need there's a chicken and egg problem of building up the equivalent size to keep driving each other. So um, we were able to pull off a first partnership with a Mexican credit bureau, actually. Um, and then in parallel, we were able to get a couple of partnerships spun up with some credit unions and a couple of fintech companies and then you know, started growing each side of, uh, of, that, of that dimension. But it was, uh, at the beginning, you're, you're selling an idea and that's, that's hard. Yeah. And I imagine your initial meetings had to have been positive with, with these banks in the Bay Area for you to actually continue pursuing? Yes and no. It depends, right? Um, we had one, um, I think one of our most most vivid memories um, was we had spoken to one credit union who's actually our partner today, um, and, and so we've been working with them for a few years, which is terrific, but we'd spoken with them. They'd been super excited about what we're doing. They already served a large immigrant population, um, and this had been from like a bunch of cold LinkedIn messages, so we'd had these great conversations. It was super productive, um, and then I kept sending them emails to follow up, and they would never reply. 
Um, so we was sort of got really skittish. Um, and a few weeks later, I was actually driving down uh, Big Sur with my parents in, in my really old Mini Cooper. And my phone kept ringing. Um, and I kept wondering, you know, who's calling my phone? I'm trying to drive. This is stressing me out. So eventually I, I pulled over because it kept ringing and it kept ringing. And it was actually um, the the CEO of this credit union being like, Nikki, I, I keep emailing you. You keep not replying. And I realized all of his emails were going to spam. Um, and so that was just one of these like magical moments where suddenly like someone cares enough about this product that they won't stop calling me, even though they've spoken to me once, don't really know who we are. Um, and that was just a, a powerful moment. And then, and then, you know, I think that there is validation, but it's also ultimately a leap of faith. Um, so for me, my co-founders sort of went away, um, thought about it um, separately, like, do, do we want to do this? Do we want to make this leap of faith? And sort of came together and said, we all want to do this. We want it. And we want to build this. And you, you never have perfect certainty. I came from a very analytical world before, of, you know, sort of doing due diligence, things like that, and thinking I would have full certainty. But ultimately, it's about do you think this can exist? Do you care enough that you want to do it? Um, and I think the best things in life, are, in life are leaps of faith, ultimately. Sometimes you got to take that jump. Yeah, for sure. Fantastic. And in terms of your client population, I mean, the immigrant population is, is very big in the United States. Mm. How did you decide where to start uh, focusing on um, we sort of tried everywhere to start, um, so we were, we were pretty scattershot. Um, and today we sort of we serve three sectors. Um, so we serve financial institutions that can be student loan, a credit card, uh, you name it. We serve um, property managers, which is someone trying to rent an apartment who today might be asked for a huge deposit or might just be rejected if they don't have a U.S. credit history. And then we serve telco, so mm-hmm. folks who are trying to provide, uh, get financing for mobile phone devices and so on and so forth. Um, initially, we had very much started with financial institutions and property management. Those were our two sort of anchor sectors. And our, and our view that was, was that financial services would be this extremely long sales cycle, but long-term where the, where the bulk of the value and the, and the size of the business would be. Tenant screening would be this easy, quick win that would support us, help us learn in parallel. Um, and that actually didn't quite prove out. In many ways, the aspects of financial services ended up being easier than property management. So a couple of years ago, we ended up focusing more on property management, uh, I'm sorry, on financial services to sort of balance that aspect. But yeah, I would say in the early days, we first of all, we we sort of tried to really focus on one or two sectors. So we didn't focus on telco. Property management came a little bit later for us, but also, again, just trying to be really focused. Um, but then we, we also found things to be very different than how we had imagined them. Uh, within financial services, when we started the business, we thought we would sort of lily pad our way over. You know, you read these go-to-market books. It's always like you start with a really small, you know, fintech or credit union. Then you go medium-sized fintech and credit union. Then you go uh, local bank or regional bank. Then you go national bank. And then you go multinational bank. And that, in many ways, hasn't been true for us. Because if you look at the financial services industry in the U.S., the bulk of U.S. lending is still done by 2025 institutions. Um, and actually, you know, the large financial institutions are the ones that are looking for ways to grow in a lot of ways um, and are also perhaps more multinational have had exposure to some of this challenge in different ways because they already have subsidiaries in other markets. So we ended up doing this sort of giant leapfrog um, from fintechs to enormous banks, which is terrifying because, you know, how do you know your product is going to service both of those sides equally well? Yeah, I mean, it's a highly regulated environment that most startups are not used to. Yes. Uh, I think I read that 
Facebook or LinkedIn, they have to deal with somewhat in the range of 40,000 regulation, whereas uh, fintechs, it's more in the 130,000, 140,000. <laughs> I'm sure we actually deal with more of those because um, we have this uh, ironic dynamic. Most businesses, you build the U.S. and then you go and build international markets. For us, we had to build partnerships in international markets just to be able to service our core business of the U.S. So we had to do the international before just to be able to do the local. And so we're subject to all of the international data privacy regulation and regimes and subject to different regulation in different countries. But in many ways, that's that's sort of the um, the backbone that underpins what we're doing this. We are, we're using the evolution of privacy regulation, so on and so forth, to enable consumers to own their data, to move it across borders and get access to the products they deserve. Makes sense. And now you mentioned international regulation. How about your international partnerships? Yeah. How have you approached building and establishing those partnerships? Um, when we have talked to, what's, what's been interesting actually is that um, in the international credit bureau landscape, there's been a lot of talk of solving the cross-border credit challenge. Um, actually, the World Bank, it's one of their five pillars of, of credit reporting, is solving the, the cross-border piece. And there have been several attempts at it uh, with, with, frankly, just pre-mixed successes. Um, and so there's a lot of passion around solving this. And so when, when we work with bureaus internationally, our pitch to them is really threefold. It's, let's help you monetize your data overseas. Let's help you serve your mission to your citizens, which is to provide them financial access. And thirdly, let's help you over time potentially enrich your data sets by being able to have this global view. Very interesting. Uh, are you, is your plan to continue expanding uh, geographies? Um, for sure. So in terms of countries that we serve, we have about 25 countries that we've partnered with today, um, about uh, 12 of those right now. Actually, we have a couple going live this week, so um, about 12 of those are live on our platform. Um, so we're constantly looking to integrate and get more, but obviously there are many more countries around the world that we need to partner with. Um, but we are starting to think about, you know, how do we serve every single newcomer to the States? And so, you know, some folks don't have credit histories. And so, uh, you know, I think about Mexico that we were talking about earlier, where the banking penetration, I think, is still under 50%. Um, so a lot of folks don't have credit histories, but they might have cell phone data or they might have some sort of other useful alternative data that serves truly as a credit proxy. Um, so as we think about being able to serve all newcomers, we are looking at ways to constantly expand our data sets and go deeper in some countries as well as serving more countries. Yeah. Do you have a relationship with the regulators? Yeah. In many, in many countries we do, yes. Um, it's super important uh, that, we, that we do that. Um, you know, our, our business is a, is a mini UN in lots of ways, and so we enjoy that. But also, we want to be part of the debate because um, I think, again, what we're doing is enshrined by a lot of regulation, supported by it. Um, so we're a business powered by regulation rather than hindered by it. Um, and it's important that we collaborate with them to also shape the future of credit reporting. Um, and when I say powered by regulation, I mean not only in terms of accessing cross-border data, but also in delivering it here in the U.S. We, we operate as a credit reporting agency. We're subject to all of the credit reporting agency regulations. You'll be horrified to hear that uh, in our early days when we would have consumer disputes, which is something that as a credit reporting agency we're responsible for the quality of the data. Um, if you or your friend says, hey, this data is wrong, we have to fix it. Uh, in the early days, that was my phone number, <laughs> was, the, uh, was the phone line to fix it. But now we obviously have a lot more protocol and, and team around how we handle that. Um, but yes, so we take our regulatory responsibility seriously. We've had to from the beginning. The only way that we can move data is through this, this regulatory dynamic. Um, and so uh, 
continuing to be forward-looking, particularly in the U.S., where there's a lot of interesting conversation right now about, you know, will there be similar open banking regulation to what there is in Europe? How will the future... You know, when will credit reporting regulation get rewritten is important because we want to build something that is um, consumer-oriented but also provides enough uh, security and privacy and responsibility in the system. Yeah, certainly a, a lot of attention being placed on credit reporting agencies for a number of reasons. Uh, given the large opportunity, why do you, why do you think uh, existing agencies haven't really paid attention to this uh, niche? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of it is, is probably the perception that it's a niche, which, uh, you know, we would disagree with in a world that's increasingly globalized. But I think there are also some mechanical dynamics as well. So it is true that a number of the large credit bureaus, uh, TransUnion, Equifax, Experian, um, Creof Credit Info, um, do have subsidiaries around the world. So I think TransUnion has about 25 countries, Equifax and Experian, something in a, in a similar magnitude. Um, but the market remains really highly fragmented. So I think you know any of those uh, incumbents, TransUnion probably has 25% of the migrant flows of the world because there are other markets where it's Experian or it's Equifax or indeed it's an independent. So this is a, a market where there are a lot of different players. Um, and so you sort of need a Switzerland of credit bureaus, someone who can come in and be the neutral third party who works with everyone. Um, and that's really what we offer. And, and how about building a culture and building a company? I mean, you mentioned that now you're a company of north of 40 people. Yeah, we're actually 50, yeah. North of 50, yeah. yeah. Uh, how have you built the team? Um, I'm incredibly proud of the team that we have. Um, this is a, a really competitive labor market. People can go to pretty much any company that they want right now. Um, and... Um, Recruiting the best talent, in my opinion, is how you succeed. Because if you have the best people in the world, that is how you're going to solve things. Um, and so I'm incredibly proud that we've been able to recruit such a stellar team where we have leading thinkers from different fields and just people who bring heart, passion, and creativity to what they're doing every day. Um, how have we recruited a great team? Um, I think we've been lucky. <laughs> um, I think we've also really had this emphasis on recruiting the best team. So uh, we work really hard, and, and we have a long way to go, but we work really hard in our recruiting processes to make sure that we're seeing a very diverse slate of candidates, because that's how you can get the best people possible, uh, by recruiting from 100% of the population. Um, and then I think we've invested a lot in our culture. And culture is so organic. It's changing all the time. And actually, I think we're at a, we're at a very interesting and frankly daunting inflection point right now where as you sort of start to hit 50 people everything that has been culturally codified starts to turn into a process and an approach and so how do you actually set up the structure and the team working well so that we can scale to 150 and things don't break and we continue to enshrine the values and beliefs that we have. Um, so we've, we've tried to be very attentive on those fronts. Uh, we try to be very intentional about our culture. Um, I think I think values are often something that companies have but don't necessarily try and reinforce very much. So we try very hard to reinforce us. So we'd have this tradition, for instance, of Nova Credits, where I will give you a Nova Credit for behaving uh, alongside a particular value. And everything we do from performance reviews to um, to our weekly all hands to just the day-to-day, -day, we, we try to really live our values. And, and how would you describe the culture that you're, you're trying to build? I think we have a, a radical ownership culture. So we recognize that um, what we're doing is something that has never been done before. Um, and so um, 
being creative, finding new ways to do things, creating solutions, creating your own Nova journey as within the company as well is something we really value and treasure. So, so that, that creativity is there. Um, I think we have a culture that is, uh, we, we, one of our cultural values is challenge without ego. So we try to actually encourage disagreement as long as it's done in a way that is without ego. It's not about me winning or being right. It's about us getting to the best outcome. Um, so we try and have a lot of sort of just intellectual humility in how we approach things. Um, at times that might slow us down. You know, I always, you know, everything's a, it's two, it's a two-sided sort of like choosing one thing, you're also choosing not, not to have another. Um, and I think we have a culture that's, you know, I, I mentioned actually as we were working, you know, our team is 70% immigrants today. We have a super international team. We have, a, we do a United Nations Day. We have lots of different foods and fun in the office. So we, we, we try and bring the vibrance of sort of our worldview into our day to day. Um, and then I think we have a, a culture of, of people who want to do their best work. Um, I think you know, our commitment to everyone who joins this company is that if, if they do well and they help this company grow, this, this will be a career-making opportunity for them. Um, you mentioned expanding to 150. Um, how about beyond 150? How do you envision the future of Nova Credit? Um, look, the problem that we're solving today is helping people who move, helping people who move get access to financial services, get access to information, get access to everything that they need to get set up um, from scratch. It's, it's our belief that, you know, whereas the internet, e-commerce and so forth um, are sectors of the economy that have truly globalized, the financial services sector hasn't. It has in terms of like equities and bonds, but it hasn't in any way in terms of banking. Banking remains extremely localized. The fact is that um, for the people who move, that becomes a real clear pain point where they can't access banking in the same way that they could do in their home market. But there's still a global challenge around the people who don't move. Um, you know, I might live in one place but be doing work for a company that's based in another place, be um, co-working with employees who are based in another place, but the world is changing but my, my, my banking system hasn't. And so a lot of our vision is how can we build a financial services system that really operates at a global scale? How can the infrastructure that we're building power that for the long term? Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm guessing also the fact that there's a whole ecosystem of fintech companies building up of neo banks, that's also that's only a positive for Nova Credit because that's an existence that you build, you grow with. That's right. I mean, I think um, our theory of change and what we've been really excited about in the fintech space is, is you know, I think there's there's a lot that's wonderful about uh, neo banks and, frankly, um, <laughs> giving a kick in the butt to financial services systems and improving standards of delivery, lowering cost of serve, and so forth. Um, I think our view is is a little bit of a more indirect one that we don't want to necessarily be a point solution, but we want to be powering change for the entire industry. So certainly we're excited to partner with um, and help grow um, all of that ecosystem. Fantastic. Uh, I wanted to address uh, a bit of a, an elephant in the room, and, and that's the fact that you, you're obviously a fantastic uh, entrepreneur, a successful founder, but you're also a female founder, and you know that is that is an aspect that is, is lacking in, in the industry. Uh, even for, for example, our podcast, I was doing the numbers and only 10% of the people we've interviewed uh, have been uh, female founders, right? So- 10%, uh, you yes, guys. that's very good, <laughs> you know? So we're, we're obviously also trying to- Yeah. Uh, wanted to hear your views on, on, on this angle and you know how do you see it improving in the future? 
I guess what I'd say is like, look, first of all, I love that you're asking the question. I think we all have to ask the question, not just among founders, but among all the teams that we work with. Like, how can those teams make sure that they're, um, if you want the best teams, you know, for me, it's just a maths equation. You want the best team possible. You probably want to have like a represent, not even just representation of 100% of the population, but you want to have tried to recruit from them because that way you can be a lot more certain that you have the best team possible and that you'll be able to grow and attract uh, more talent. Um, I think everyone in the world right now is in the battle to try and recruit more diverse talent to change their teams. And I'm particularly excited about the companies that are serious about it because I think it is work. It is work to build a diverse team and you kind of have to, you have to embrace it. For us, you know, we've made it one of our company-wide OKRs. Like, what does our pipeline look like? We measure the mid-funnel specifically, how we're doing in terms of various um, underrepresented minority categories um, so that we can ensure that we're neither just we're sourcing people at the top of the funnel and then not interviewing them, nor tokenizing people at the end of the funnel. But I think just prioritizing it and making efforts there is important. And then celebrating the contributions of, of many um, uh, either founders or, or leaders in the space who we have, um, who, um, people of color, um, women in tech. I'm always surprised women in tech. It's not a minority, but it is in some ways. Um, vet status, LGBTQIA, and so on and so forth. So I'm excited to celebrate those contributions more. Um, and I think uh, for anyone who's building a team today, ask yourself how you're going to build the best team today. Because it also, you know, I think for us as a company, we have a competitive advantage in recruiting women because we have visible women leaders and it becomes easier. And the same thing becomes true um, with other underrepresented groups in tech. Um, and so investing in that early on is a key to success. But really what I want to emphasize is that uh, this is something that a whole company is responsible for and no individual. And I think we often put double work on whatever underrepresented group it is. And I've, I know we've done that at Nova. I know that we lean on our um, employees of color to help us recruit and attract more candidates of color. And I'm so grateful to them for that work. But I'm also very grateful that everyone at the company takes it seriously um, and that everyone at the company is invested in supporting and building an amazing team. And, and that gets them excited because we're all in this together. Fantastic. So we have a, a lot of listeners who are aspiring entrepreneurs as well. Oh, hello. Uh, you know, obviously they're very excited to hear your story. Do you have any advice for, for a future founder? Uh, I don't know. I mean, as I said, I was an accidental founder, so uh, very, hard to, very hard to give advice. Um, I would say, um, you know, it sounds very trite and always, everyone always says, you know, only do it if you're passionate. Uh, but starting a company takes more out of you um, than you had imagined, and it also... You know, I think I sort of naively always thought that it would be, you know, two years, and then and then and then we've and then we've gone global, and it's all done. Um, and it, you know, it turns out it takes a little bit longer, no matter how fast your growth rate is. Um, and so make sure you're you're doing something that you're you're you really want to do for the long term. Um, I think trust is super important. So how do you surround yourself with people that you truly trust? Um, because most startups. Uh, will struggle, well, most startups fail either due to go-to-market challenges or due to um, team challenges. Um, and particularly with your co-founders, I think that trust has to be seamless and that respect has to be there. Um, and then I would say um, uh, it's your job to know all the reasons why your company should fail. Um, and so make sure you know them, make sure you're ready to talk about them and keep sort of running post-mortems every once in a while and re-looking at the state of the market, the state of the industry and, and holding yourself honest to what do we need to be doing differently. Fantastic. And finally, I wanted to end on a more personal note. Uh, curious to hear about some of your hobbies. I know, I saw that. I was like, oh. <laughs> um, so my, uh, <laughs> 
my, my partner has many, many hobbies, and I'm not, I, I'm not as good at hobbies, but um, my, my hobbies, so I love to play squash, um, I love to uh, read a lot, um, and then I only moved to New York pretty recently, so um, it's been really fun just enjoying the theater scene here. Um, we're not too far from it in the office, so um, I try and really make the most of it. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much.